welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, what's going on, my man? Not so much. Another Wednesday for the Growth EQ Podcast. As always, a pleasure to be here with you, Steve. I, um, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. We've got a great special guest that um, knows me really well, and, and I hope I don't get embarrassed too much. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. But yeah, really excited for today's conversation. You know what? So am I. And listeners, if you're excited for this podcast, do you know how you can get it sooner? Well, if you support us on Patreon, we drop these episodes a week earlier than they come out. Right after we record them and edit them, we put them up for our special Patreon guests and subscribers. So if you want to hear this before everybody else, sign up. Not only that, but we've got some exciting new opportunities and guests coming on exclusive to our Patreon. We've got Cal Newport coming on to talk to our Patreon subscribers. And then we're reading The Biggest Bluff as part of our book club. And then having Maria Konnikova coming on to talk to our subscribers. We also have quarterly mastermind groups and all sorts of other cool stuff. So if that sounds intriguing to you, sign up. You can do it at patreon.com slash the growth equation. The links are in the show notes for this show as well. So please give it a look. Yeah, we're really excited about the community that we're building there. Um, It is um, not only super helpful to support the show and the editing and the production and the domain and all that stuff, but also um, it's just neat to see the interaction amongst that community and the cool insights that are coming out of it. So Speaking of community, ooh, look how we're doing this. We're tying everything together, Steve. Today on the show, we've got someone that um, is in my local community here in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, His name is Zach Greenwald. He is the founder and co-owner of a gym called Strength Ratio, and he is also my personal health and fitness coach. And we are going to dive into all things health and fitness. We're going to talk about many of the common myths. You're going to get the lowdown on things like foam rolling and ice baths and high intensity versus long, slow distance. And um, we're even going to touch on nutrition. Uh, We made Zach a deal that he could either talk about both religion and politics or just nutrition. And nutrition was the slightly less uncomfortable topic, but only by about a half a percentage point. So really good conversation today. Uh, We think you all are going to love it. And with that, we'll dive into the show. Zach, welcome to the podcast. How's everything going? It's going well, Steve. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation because, you know, it's right up my alley. I finally get to nerd out with another uh, professional in the fitness slash strength world. So, um, before we dive in that into this though, I've got to ask you about Brad because all I know from Brad's training is about once every, you know, two to three days, I get this, this video or picture texted to my phone of him just doing squats or, or deadlifts. And he's so excited and so proud of it. So maybe for our listeners, can can you walk us through 
the behind the scenes on Brad's training. Can I object, Your Honor, to this? <laughs> well, there's actually a, a, a cool backdrop, which I'll try to keep succinct. And that is that in 2019, around like January or February, my dad, who I, I also coach, um, and he lifts at his little garage gym in my you know hometown in the house I grew up in. But he, he sends me... A, uh, a link to a New York Times article, and it's titled Zen and the Art of Lifting. And we shared it on our platform because it really spoke to this mindfulness behind lifting, this intentionality, and also uh, how it comes not just with like great physical benefits and potentially social benefits, but all these nice like you know mental and psychological benefits. So we share that on our social. Brad's not on Instagram, so there's no one to like reach out to, and this connection was never made. But then, you know, about a year and a half later, in the middle of COVID, I get a, a message from, from Brad and looking for, for coaching. And, and, you know, we had no idea that this, you know, connection would happen, that we serendipitously would post his article on our social. And then the author reaches out saying, I, I would like a coach. But yeah, Brad is uh, looking to improve in his powerlifting. And the reason he's sending you a lot of squat videos and uh, deadlift videos, maybe even uh, a bench press video. Uh, here and there, which he's most proud of, uh, is because that's specific to the sport of powerlifting, those three lifts in particular. I love it. I love it. Although I don't love all the videos, Brad. So you you can send those to Zach and, and not me. Steve um, is my personal Instagram feed. So listeners, I'm saving you all my squat videos and deadlift videos and bench press videos because they all just go to Steve. <laughs> Who has just completely stopped responding, by the way. <laughs> All right. Now that that's... Yeah, yeah just, just assume I'm liking it. So you get that hit of dopamine. It's just, I think that's what it is. You, you just need that hit of feel good after your uh, bench press PR. I'm going to start sending you uh, videos of me laying exhausted out on the track after a workout. Um and anyway, so an, enough of Brad, let's jump into the meat of the topic, which, you know, we frame this around uh, myths around, you know, fitness industry, which I think, you know, is a topic that's personal to me, but I think so highly relevant. And what we're going to try and do is just kind of knock through a couple of these, not dive too deep, but just to give uh, listeners enough information so that they kind of center on the the right path for fitness. So, why don't, you know, you're an expert in this area. You've worked in this area for a while. What are some big things that, that kind of stand out to you, Zach, on pe- things that people have the maybe wrong idea on in the strength and conditioning fitness world? Yeah, I, I think we can break it down into like two larger categories of myths. The, you know, the, the, the first category, the former is one that I feel like it, it's it's really in my wheelhouse and in line with my, you know, professional skill set. The second is part, it it was part of my uh, education in school, but I wouldn't say is my expertise and that latter half being some uh, nutrition related topics. But I think what's um, really challenging for many individuals is to kind of know where to start on this uh, performance side of things. You know, after someone's identified their goals, um, and kind of ha- have some you know connection to a why they're doing it to keep them going. Uh, 
uh, it's it's oftentimes hard to know where to look for for reliable information uh, because you know it's it's such a as you know uh, Steve it's it's a field in which we all have our own uh, you know personal experience with movement before we ever become professionals just as many architects lawyers you know stay at home parents and everyone in between has their own relationship with movement uh, which kind of you know biases us already towards a certain uh, uh, type of movement perhaps. And then when you layer on top all the different, you know, ways that you can digest fitness related information, whether it's a people's magazine or a YouTube video, um, it, it's hard to know where to even start. Um, so I think it would be great to just dive into like, Hey, if you're a beginner, or even if you're just generally like wanting to you know, participate in resistance training or cardiovascular training, where's a good place to, to begin. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think you're right on that bias. I've, I've often thought about this because it seems like in the fitness world, because a lot of us know a little bit about it, we're, we're fooled into thinking like we, we know a, a lot, right? Because it's not like we're walking in and saying, hey, we're going to do, you know, uh, brain surgery on you. No, we, we know that like, okay, I don't have that expertise, but because almost, you know, most of us had some experience in either sport or training or movement to a degree. And all of us eat foods and get exposed to nutrition labels and all that kind of stuff. We all think, okay, we know enough to be dangerous and that, that can get us into trouble. So if, if you're talking to, you know, a new client or new um, athlete, how would you guide them in sorting through what is actually a good piece of information and in, in where to look at and where to stay away from? Yeah, I, I think what I would start with, uh, rather than guiding them to maybe like a, a specific resource that could then lead them down the YouTube algorithms of them coming to me with, you know, many more questions that seem to all conflict is just presenting what I believe is just a, a great starting point for someone's, um, you know, overall health and wellness with, with an exercise regimen. And, and if you consider, um, and, and, and in this case, someone might not have like very specific competitive goals. They would just like to feel confident and strong in their body. And um, yeah, they just want to benefit from the myriad of, of exercises, um, benefits for mind and body. I think a great place to start would just be to have some kind of plan and it doesn't have to be highly structured, uh, but a plan that involves both resistance training and some form of cardiovascular training. Uh, there's a lot of literature too, to say that with regards to body composition and uh, even uh, when you look at some research around longevity that there's no need to totally close yourself off from um, say, if you're a runner to totally close yourself off from resistance training and vice versa. If you're a power lifter or someone who's chasing after um, something super related to resistance training or strength sport goals, you don't want to just totally drop the ball on your cardiovascular health. So, so let's, let's dive into this a little bit because you know, Zooming out, a lot of times what you see is people join different camps, right? They're like, oh, I'm in the, the all strength camp. I'm in the endurance running camp. I'm in the high intensity interval training camp. Let's, let's dispel that a little bit for, you know, the general public on why like taking this extreme view in 
discarding some of these modalities might not be the best approach. And, and I'm going to add in one more question to Zach, because I'm curious. And I think it's important to at what point does specificity in getting really narrow matter? So is it someone like me that wants to just get to like 1200 pounds across the three big lifts? Is it a national class lifter, a world class lifter, or are you going to say that actually, like, regardless of your um, level and goals, you should have somewhat of a broad base? So maybe it's like a helpful framework to start with the person that has no sport specific performance goal and just wants to be healthy. And my hypothesis there is broad is best. And then we can kind of go down the funnel to uh, armchair athlete like myself to wanting to be regionally competitive to wanting to be elite and so on. Awesome. So, uh, Brad, you'll you'll remind me to speak on the interference effect when we get to that part. Um, that'll be like the best. Yeah, I'm always asking uh, for listeners. I'm always asking Zach. Um, so yeah, my goal is to lift as much as I can across the three big lifts: bench press, as Steve knows, deadlift, and squat. Um, but I also want to be able to go on long walks with my dog and hike with my son. And as listeners know, I can, I can put the blinders on when I'm chasing after a performance oriented goal. So every once in a while I text Zach freaking out, like, I think I'm hiking too much. Is it going to mess up my squat? And Zach inevitably says no. So yeah, we'll get there. We'll talk about the interference effect and, and, uh, around that, that consideration or, or your specific consideration and those who have similar goals. Um, I, I do think, to mention yours or to respond to yours first, Steve, is it's so, I mean, exercise is so connected to our sense of um, not just self, but community. Um, Many have deep seated uh, connections um, with their own like personal identity with their exercise. And I think that this plays a large role in where people will begin their exercise journey, whether it's, you know, what a friend is doing or what is most popular in what, Ever news source or media uh, that they're consuming. But even if you just begin, for example, with something like um, high intensity interval training versus low intensity, slow steady state training, and this is from just like a cardiovascular standpoint, right? Um, I think many people uh, nowadays are seeing and for have, have for many uh, years now, uh, perhaps since the you know, CrossFit really became popular have seen high intensity interval training as being superior to low intensity steady state training. And a lot of this comes from research that, and this main benefit, like the real push to like get people to do hit. And the reality is they're both great. (laughs) It would be great to involve uh, both high and low intensity training in a cardiovascular program. But there was a a research study that was looking at one um, specific uh, physiological marker in that in response to high intensity interval training, that you had this kind of like this afterburn, this uh, excess post-exercise oxygen consumption, which basically says that, you know, you might get in 20 minutes of a workout and you're done, go on with your day, but then you're like metabolically revving and you're crushing it the rest of the day. And well, so now we know that this epoch, as it's called, this physiological phenomenon, this like metabolic afterburn, it, it is um, not nearly as significant as was previously believed. Um, and when you equate a 30-minute hit session versus a 30-minute low-intensity session, all things equal, the net calorie burn is uh, nearly the same. 
And you also have to consider, more importantly, what you're doing in the rest of your day. But if someone came to me and said, hey, you know, I would love to involve cardiovascular training in my program or in my life, I would say, hey, try both and, and see how it feels. Maybe just don't dive into one and not the other. And, and the great thing about HIT, if I were to make an art, uh, like a case for HIT, is uh, you know, people usually feel like, you know, subjectively, like they got a great workout. They really believe in it because of the sensation they have. And even if it might not be superior from like a energy expenditure or weight loss standpoint, if you believe in it towards your goals, that's great. And if you enjoy it, and if it's like a social thing you do with, with friends, that's awesome. But as like a myth busting thing and as a way to get people started on their journey, um, you kind of have to just try what's out there. Maybe you're going to go run or ride a bike or you're going to do hit, but I'd recommend trying both. So I want to ask something here because I think this is really important and I don't want you to feel uncomfortable with false precision. So I'm going to say like on balance or generally speaking, if someone wants to focus on aerobic cardiovascular fitness and they say, tell me what's better coach, 15 to 18 minutes of kettlebell swings and goblet squats in um, what are those called burpees or a 45 to 50 minute fast paced walk is the answer that what's better is whatever you enjoy more is the answer. And again, this isn't for an elite athlete. This is just for someone looking to get healthy. Yeah. The, the, the key thing that would lead me in this example, it's just, and, and wait, and they're saying that they're doing this for their well being or for like a what's a specific goal. Yep. For, 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 for their, just for their general aerobic health. And they're coming to you and saying, should I swing a kettlebell hard for 15 minutes or should I go on a 45 minute brisk walk? Okay. I would say that for their general wellness, if they only have 45 minutes, although a hit session for 45 minutes with those movements might be a little too much, but, but I see what you're saying is I would probably say that a brisk walk is not enough to elicit these kind of like zone. And, and for some, it may be like, if you're actually very much out of touch with a training practice when you previously had been, or if you haven't trained in many years, starting with brisk walking can be very adaptive and it's actually like a fantastic place to start. And that means you would get to choose like kind of whichever one you'd like. And maybe the brisk walking is where you'd want to build momentum. If you are a trained individual though, the brisk walking is probably not enough to get your heart rate to where we consider this like zone two aerobic uh, adaptation. So I would say like all things equal, 45 minute hit or 45 minute, like long, slow, steady state run. You kind of choose either what you enjoy most or just simply what is most easily accessible. Like if you don't have equipment at home, let's go for a run. And like in COVID, that's why you saw so many people go for, for runs because that was available. Um, but all things equal, it's really down to preference there. But I think it brings up a great point that if you're new to exercise, starting with brisk walking, and then dosing in little bits of jogs can be a really positive thing. I hope that answers the question. So that that's a great point there. And one I want to linger on, um, because I think that also ties into what you talked about with HIT and that feeling of you accomplished something, right? I think that that is really good, but it also can be a little dangerous in the sense that if you go into every workout feeling like I need to feel that like 
that fatigue and that like really good, then it then it it kind of blinds you to the fact that sometimes that brisk or that brisk walk or that slow jog, while it might not have that feeling afterwards, is still giving you some of those benefits. Yes, and this this is so important because ideally, like Steve, with your runners and with Brad as an athlete, or if I have a CrossFit athlete or any like I. Ideally, we would just train with high intensities and high frequencies to elicit really good adaptations. The, the, the challenge to where, and we'll get eventually into resistance training, or maybe not, but this, the same holds true for resistance training. High intensity, high frequency it does not work because the higher the intensity, the higher the recovery cost. So ideally, I think every kind of endurance coach or every resistance coach is trying to say, how much intensity can I get out of this athlete? But the reality is you can only do so much. So often in the world of you know, endurance, you hear about an 80-20 split where the 80 is spent in this low steady state, the 20 is trying to push for intensity adaptations. You can think of it as kind of dulling the blade if you just always try to take you know, all effort out on, on the workout. And boy, can this go into like so many different areas of people's psychology and individual training enjoyment, because a lot of people approach training from these perspectives of like, you know, my training has to be my therapy or my, like I have this warrior mentality, training is war. And these are very antithetical, while they're very real human experiences, it's antithetical to our marketing and to our conversations that we have with clients because while high intensity is cool, it's got great adaptations, and while pushing close to failure for strength training is important and necessary, it's like all in the context of creating some balance that allows you to recover from your training. And indeed, if you feel like training is war and every day you're just struggling to get by, uh, you're going to either you know kind of break yourself down or, or just psychologically burn out. So not every session should be a hard session. I have, I have an example, I think from my own training, which is, I certainly wouldn't say that I go into it with the mindset that training is war, but it is an area of my life that I really enjoy because it is, um, we've talked about this on the podcast before. There is a really profound sense of mastery that I don't necessarily get with writing or my executive coaching work. And what I mean by that is with strength training, the measure is so objective like I either get stronger or I don't. It, it, there's no reader that either likes the piece or not, or no client that either takes the advice and listens or doesn't. It is just the bar in you. And the same thing is true for running, for swimming, for cycling. That's the beauty of, of individual sport in many ways. Um, as a result, sometimes my inclination, and I've learned this over 15 years of training airs, is to want to feel like I got a, a workout in, whatever that even means, that feeling. So knowing that, Zach, I think one of the first things when I moved to Asheville and I first met you is I said, like, your job is very rarely going to be to push me forward. It's going to be to hold me back. And we really quickly got onto RPE and percentages um, where I had to learn fast that a quote unquote hard day might mean stopping when I have four reps left in the tank, even though I could go four more. Nope, I'm going to stop. And if I don't feel super aroused and strong the rest of the day, that's okay because the goal isn't to be addicted to that feeling. The goal is to have a long-term progression towards strength. Yes. And, and it's really challenging when um, you're beginning and you're not sure like, well, how do I know that what I'm doing is recoverable and, and, and a long enough timeline, you'll, 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 you'll feel that out. Like you'll, you'll, 
you know, receive cues from your body, whether it's in relation to sleep or appetite or perhaps um, uh, pain signals that you're receiving from your body. But, but ultimately to be able to kind of explore both long, slow, steady state work, which again can be cycling, it can be running, it can be, you know, um, pretty, uh, um, I would say not like very easy hiking, but like, you know, a good um, moderate to challenge, challenging hike. Um, uh, or, you know, something that you really want to push yourself on, it's, it's just going to take some time to find a blend. But I think to get to a spot where you're able to tap into varying intensities and feel recovered is just is, is a really uh, healthy thing, uh, though, you know, our egos can sometimes get in the way and lead us to taking on more than we can chew. But that, that's just a, a learning opportunity. So I, I love it. What I'm hearing is is lots of nuance, lots of understanding that you have all these in, intensities to play with and and taking advantage of that. I'm wondering on, on a specific strength training um, piece that this kind of reminds me of is this notion or this debate over whether we should strength train to failure or not or when that comes into play. I'm wondering if you could kind of speak to your experience or thoughts on that. So there's been incredible advancements in our understanding around this exact topic as it pertains to both muscular growth and improvements in absolute strength. And the absolute strength we're talking about is in labs, it's often seen with like single joint exercises, but as for people are like wanting to know about this, it's often seen in the worlds of like powerlifting or weightlifting. Um, so if we were to look at the world of, you know, being able to add muscular size. Many people want to do this. Um, well, you know, adaptations can occur uh, by not going to failure. Uh, and that's not to say, and by the way, this is also very important. I'm not talking as much about technical failure as muscular failure. This is made more challenging when you're doing something like a barbell back squat, where like if I'm doing leg extensions, I can be like, okay, that was muscular failure. That was easy to identify. When I'm doing a back squat and I, you know, my single joint exercise, which was easy to identify how many reps I have in the tank, it was a lot more challenging because there's just a, many more moving pieces in, in a back squat. Your legs may not be the limiter in the back squat. Um, might be like your postural muscles and staying upright are, are, are challenged, for example. But all this to say is that Training with, say, like only one rep in the tank or training to total failure has a lot more risk than it does reward. And you can think of like a seven of 10 effort if we're going to use like a, and this is known as a, a perceived exertion using reps in reserve. This is what Brad uses in his training. But um, if we think of like a seven of 10, more subjectively, someone will say, and, and this also works, literature shows that people giving ratings like this is, is a good way to train. Yeah, that was like a seven of 10, which says it's hard, but it's not max, right? But we can think of it more specifically as saying, well, it's not an exact science. A seven meant three reps in the tank. Maybe a, a nine means one rep in the tank. Basically, it's the difference to 10. And if you're working with somewhere in the ballpark of like, you know, three to four reps in the tank or two to three, like good reps, we're talking about really good reps, that's very stimulative and you're going to be adding some muscular size. Like this is um, something that we've learned quite recently as being something that can really help people in their training and help them recover and minimize risk with lifting. And that's for muscular size. Now that I will say as an athlete, that took some getting used to because 
if you are lifting a weight that's heavy enough where maybe you could get, I don't know, eight really good reps, stopping at five, you feel like you got a lot left because you could almost double. Um, so there's a fair amount of restraint as an athlete that, that I've had to learn there. But obviously the proof is in the pudding because like I see myself getting stronger and the lifts feeling easier. Um, but it is, it's very antithetical to, I think it was maybe four years ago when there was a big study that looked at muscular size and strength. And they said that, um, if you just train twice a week to failure, you get the same adaptations. But when you look back at that study, they weren't doing multi-joint complex lifts. They were doing like barbell curls or single leg extensions, whereas you pointed out the risk of injury and totally messing up and probably just like systemic overtraining is a lot lower because you're only working the single joint. And I would say that if you're like really well practiced in your technique and you have a very busy schedule and you're going to only train twice a week, you want to create a good amount of intensity. So I would make sure that those efforts are actually high because your, your total frequency is quite low. But Brad, you're right. Leaving good reps in the tank, you feel a good muscular burn. You're like, hey, I, I feel my muscle working, but I'm not going to total exhaustion, especially with, you can think of it as like compound lifts or movements with a barbell, um, uh, movements that are a bit more technical. Leaving those lifts uh, in the tank is going to be positive. And, and there can be times where, you know, you, you intensify that exertion and you push closer to failure, but pushing towards and even past, uh, I think the most common thing we see is, is technical failure and people aren't spending the time perhaps to learn a good technical foundation, which is hard because every video on YouTube says something different and everyone has their own ways they've done it their whole lives is, is that we're not talking about technical failure or, or sorry, we're not talking about um, muscular failure, we're talking about technical failure. And if I said that in reverse earlier, I apologize, but we're saying good reps in reserve, not bad reps. But on the strength side of things, Steve, this is going to be where, you know, once the technique is sound and the more specific you get to an event, that's where it is going to be important to experience the heavy load. Much like in a race, you want to get closer to your race paces. The, the, the carryovers in, 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 in intensity and volumes are very congruous between lifting weights and, and endurance training. All right. So I'm going to shift gears just a little bit because you, you wanted to remind me to ask you, and I think now's a good time. So let's talk about the so-called interference effect. And let's talk about it at different levels of training. So what I mean by this is if we've got the person that's brand new to training and just wants to get healthy, maybe improve their body composition. My hypothesis as a writer and an armchair exercise scientist is it doesn't really matter. Just move consistently. You can strength train, you can run, do whatever you feel like. As you get better, my hypothesis is there's more of an interference, meaning, oh no, I'm worried about hiking 30 miles a week and what that might do to my squat. And my hypothesis, and you could tell me I'm wrong, is at the most elite levels of sport, that interference effect is real. I think the most prime extreme crazy example was a few years ago when CrossFit coaches and um, not all CrossFit coaches, but some CrossFit coaches that were very much like treating the brand as a religion were commenting that these world-class marathoners, the thing that was stopping them from going from 211 to 209 or whatever was that they weren't doing CrossFit. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And that claim just 
lacks complete understanding of, of, you know, very important and foundational training principles such as specificity. Um, but to answer your question, if you are a beginner and you're like, hey, I am enjoying lifting weights. And let's say I, I want to get some muscular size. Okay, I know I'm going to leave a few good reps in the tank. I'm going to really focus on my good form, whether I have a coach who's helping me or I'm like trying my best with my YouTube searches to, to find what feels good in my body. And, you know, you're, you're also strength training. And, and, and just so this is a little bit of a, an aside, all of weight training is conducive to adding muscular size, even when you lift heavy weights. But when I say strength training, I'm just talking about like, High, uh, heavier weights, fewer reps, like one to six reps is what I am meaning when I say strength training versus six plus reps. It's, it's all going to add muscular size, but to get really strong, which is a great adaptation as well, you'd want to also lift heavy weights. So varying those rep ranges and the loads is important. However, but to Brad's question, you're, you're enjoying all of those things. You're like, wow, I'm getting a little bit stronger. I'm, I'm seeing some more muscular definition. Uh, I want to also participate in this 5k run uh, in the turkey trot on uh you know over, over the thanksgiving holiday well when you're a beginner to training like you said brad and you're totally right the research shows that the interference effect literally does not exist for beginners because we they cannot create enough stress for that interference effect to occur but the stronger that you get the more capable you are whether it's in the weight room or on the track the more stress you can can create and and that interference effect becomes greater and, and this is going to lead, based on someone's goals, to say, and, and the interference effect, meaning that the more you push one aspect of, say, like this spectrum of cardio versus, you know, lifting weights or resistance training, the more you push one, the less you'll be able to just as equally push the other. I think one response is you can say, so what? If you're someone who just wants to be generally healthy and you're looking to not eke out the last like 2% of your, of your training goals. Like you're not really looking for training optimization, i.e. you're not an Olympic athlete, excuse me. You're not looking to make a world team. You're not looking to, you know, lock in that scholarship. I would still promote, uh, I would still advocate for a concurrent training plan, even though the interference effect exists. And, um, uh, for those who are not, who are looking to, you know, avoid the, the potential detriments to the interference effect, I would say that this applies only in a very specific case. It would be for elite level lifters when they are closest to competition, because you will even see that the most elite athletes in the world, when they are far away from a competition, they are very general in their approach to their training and they titrate it down to improve specificity of the event as they get closer. So really, again, coming back to how a great way to start with a fitness routine is both with a blend of strength and cardio or resistance training and cardio is because maybe just right before that event, when you're looking to get those last like bit of gains out, that's when you wouldn't want one to interfere with the other. So I'm going to ask a question based on uh, coming from an endurance background, because I, I remember going through my this myself, uh, athletes I coach as well, is when you come from an endurance background and then you start strength training, one of the things that can be quite overwhelming is understanding or knowing what exercises to do. 
And we've talked a lot on this podcast on like the single joint versus multi-joint complex exercises. If we're just talking someone who's just getting into, into resistance training, what are your thoughts on exercise selection, the kind of basic things that maybe they should look into um, doing? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. And it's a my, my answer hopefully is, is as succinct as I want it to be. But I think where we have to begin is with a consideration of kind of, how do I say it's, it's really prioritization, if, if, if this makes sense, and, and, and prioritization of a few things. If, if you are looking to, um, uh, uh, say, uh, you know, maximize uh, uh, your running abilities, and, and you're looking to really prioritize your running, and you're entering into a strength training environment, and you're not really sure kind of what you're getting into, well, then, you know, and this might hold true for someone who's brand new to training or is a recreational rock climber or loves skiing or all this. If you feel like you don't have the knowledge, starting with machines can actually be fantastic because not only do the machines really lock you into a position of, you know, low risk, uh, the, the technique is quite straightforward, but it just really won't uh, um, create as much stress on the body. And that could be a great way to begin your journey. And another great way to begin your journey is with the resistance of your own body weight. A lot of folks can benefit, especially if they're fearful of, you know, signing up for a gym membership for the first time of just starting that movement practice of resistance training at home, because it's important to remember that resistance training can be your own body weight against gravity. And, and when we start with body weight exercises and machines, and we're looking to maybe make it a little bit more technical or involve more joints uh, all at the same time. And it's great to, um, you know, maybe step out into some multi-joint exercises. Uh, there's no one in particular that's perfect or that's, you know, the be-all, end-all outside of specific events like we discussed for Brad. But you look at multi-joint exercises like lunges and squats and deadlifts and overhead pressing or bench pressing. Uh, these are all uh, more technical, but great exercises to learn, perhaps after you've taken the uh, initial uh, steps in acclimating your body to either its own body weight against or its own weight against gravity or, or some machines. I think uh, uh, just like the walking example, the body weight example is its parallel. Yeah. So I want to do a couple of quick hits here. I know we're bouncing around, but foam rolling. Um, my guess is that 90 to hundred percent of podcast listeners will know what foam rolling is just because it's like probably 80% of the general population by now. I think we hit peak foam rolling maybe three years ago when my mom told me that she signed up for a foam rolling class. Um, so moving back and forth on a kind of styrofoam or rubberized plastic cylinder to, um, allegedly, uh, maybe increase blood flow or loosen up muscles. Um, good, bad, somewhere in between. And um, if this could be someone that loves foam rolling or it could be someone that hates foam rolling but feels like they should be doing it. So I'll, I'll share what the literature sh says and then I'll give like my own personal just thought on the matter. But the literature says that foam rolling is to no real detriment 
And in one study that didn't look at other modalities of um, uh, dynamic stretching, it was saying that, um, you know, there was uh, observation, observations in, in short, uh, uh, short in the short term in increases in uh, joint angles. So increases in what you can consider to be, you know, quote unquote flexibility. Um, when we, you, when you also uh, take into account foam rolling, uh, done in conjunction with uh, something like dynamic stretching, uh, there is really no benefit to be had. There's no net gain. And this idea of foam rolling so as to... Wait, real quick, Zach, you said that there's no detriment. Well, I want to know, is there a benefit? I mean, no detriment is a pretty low bar. Um, the, the, the benefit, and, and we actually just had an honest conversation about this on Monday, is that the benefit is perhaps, in, you know, as we're going through our busy lives, you have a chance to just kind of like create a space between your work life or student life, you know, what, what, what have you, and coming into the gym. It's kind of like a reset, um, you know, like some meditation practices talk about like observing when you're standing up out of your chair, moving on to the next thing. Some people use foam rolling as something that just feels positive on their body. And it's like, okay, I'm about to begin my training session. Now, does that mean that your whole training, I've, I've had conversations with clients and this is very real. They'll say, I, I don't have time for the whole workout. And we'll talk about it. And they say, I spent 10 minutes foam rolling. And this is a really good opportunity for me to share how, hey, maybe, you know, we make that transition stage, the foam rolling, 60 seconds to two minutes, right? And then we maybe start with the bar weight and, 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 and ease in there. Um, so, so while there are no detriments, uh, the positive could be maybe just like having that psychological switch or even just the time to have like some mindfulness. But, but one thing that's important is that there, you know, releasing like your, your tissues can't like there's, we, we know this now in, in literature, a, a piece of foam cannot release uh, a muscle. This is not something that exists. We cannot, um, you know, we cannot um, like reduce or release adhesions. Like our, our tissues are far more resilient. A good example is, um, we can put barbells on our back with a good amount of weight relative to like, you know, what the human body has been able to do or what, you know, we are able to do in our journey. And that barbell doesn't dent our uh, spine. It's supported by our, our muscles. And this is very important. Our, our foam roller cannot create morphological change and it doesn't, but can it release muscle like, or relax muscular tension in a similar way that dynamic stretching does where you feel a little more limber, certainly, but it's not perhaps the best long-term strategy to like resolving chronic pain, for example. So let's dive into that. Then you mentioned dynamic stretching. If foam rolling isn't the recovery modality um, of choice besides that reset, do you think after working out hard, after lifting hard, whatever it is, what would you have your athletes do from a recovery modality standpoint? So I think that, and, and what shows to be no different when they look at a lot of these recovery modalities, like even when you look at things like uh, cryotherapy, which is like some kind of like ice induced therapy, whether it's full body or water immersion um, on the, the warming up and cooling down side of things, simply getting your core body temperature up with a cycle is, is or like a, a, if you're running a, a light jog, that's a, a great warm up because your your muscles have properties uh, thermal properties and you're literally just warming warming them up. 
Um, or if you're about to do a lifting session and you go through some kind of flow where, you know, maybe you do some leg swings, you do some trunk rotations or elbow wrist circles. This is the kind of thing that um, is going to perhaps get the session going and you don't feel like you have to spend a whole lot of time on a foam roller because the foam roller is going to prevent uh, or reduce the risk of injury. That, that's that's um, If there was like an overrated, underrated on foam rollers right now, it would be overrated. But if a new client came to me and they're like, hey, like I really believe in this. I love this. I've got a routine. I'd be like, perfect. Let's not take it out. What about, because you kind of avoided the question. So is what you're saying that no recovery modalities work? And I'll get really clear because you mentioned like, you know, cold therapy. Is there any benefit to doing anything after a challenging workout other than eating food? Um, well, so <laughs> if I were to answer just the cryotherapy, for example, like a cold bath. <laughs> um, so, and we're talking like very, like not just like cold, um, like, like these ice baths, you see this with athletes a lot. Um, I would say the only time that I, I really believe that to be appropriate. I know a lot of people in the field who are much smarter than me feel this way as too, feel this way too, based on recent literature is if you have like really um, grueling multiple day sessions and you're looking to perhaps, um, and, and this is a, a short term thing, like even in a single day, maybe you're looking to like decrease the body's perception of discomfort so it can be ready for another event. Um, that could potentially come with its risks though. When you come to like talk about pacing and all this. So, uh, one thing that's uh, important is that, um, so, so the answer is only rarely, and it might be for like multiple events in a single day, but one big detriment is that you actually have decreased muscle mass when you use a ice bath immediately after use. And to be honest, y'all, you're going to see this with almost everything that's advertised as you being able to use like this, you know, piece of equipment. Yeah. It's not all for shit. Like do these, some of these like Theraguns fall under a category of being able to like reduce perceived soreness, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. But like, if you have a really sound training plan, which touching back on our, you know, earlier conversations that isn't meant to increase intensity or be intense all the time. And you are, you know, eating regularly, like Brad said, or you're sleeping. I would say do what you believe in as it's worked in the past. But if you're new to this, I wouldn't go down the rabbit hole of like trying to purchase or especially invest a lot of money in a recovery tool. And free yourself is, is somebody that is, um, uh, like I say, I call myself like a, an armchair elite athlete, meaning I'm nowhere near an elite athlete, but like sometimes I approach training with that intensity. Save yourself the psychological and energetic stress of feeling like you have to do all this stuff. Like I know people who are not pro at sports who have like hour and a half routines around prepping for training and recovering. And as a result, they're like constantly rushed. And I, I can't help but think that their quote unquote recovery is actually doing more harm than good because they're stressing about fitting in the recovery. Mm -hmm. you, you know, I think, I think it's kind of like when, when you, when you think about fitness, okay, it's, it's not like looking at, <laughs> um, you know, being able to buy a home. We're not looking at like fixed rates and absolutes 
on a given day. And if anyone approaches you with like this fixed mindset or speaking in absolutes or trying to sell you on something that's like the best or superior to all the rest, this is someone that you want to just politely try to move on from because there is so much nuance and we have to consider an individual's emotional and physical history with exercise, the context of like you mentioned, Brad, like the time you have to work with in a single session. Uh, this is why for people who are really looking to find a healthy relationship with their exercise or improve the relationship with exercise, finding a gym or finding a coach can be such a wonderful thing. Um, but if you find someone speaking in absolutes or promising you these results, that's when you perhaps want to just try to move on to something that seems just a little bit more human and digging into the context of your goals and your life. Cause there's just so many like yes. ands to this conversation. That is such a important lesson. I hope listeners go back and listen to that again, because that applies not just to the world of fitness, but practically everything we encounter. Um, so at the beginning, you touched on or you mentioned that there are a lot of myths around, we'll call it nutrition diet. And um, I'd be remiss if we didn't just touch on that before we, you know, end this podcast, because I think it is something that so many people have questions on because there's so much misinformation. And again, it's something that I think everybody feels like they know just enough about everything. So they hold these opinions very strongly. Um, I'll leave it up to you on where you take this question. But when, you know, what are the big kind of nutrition or diet myths that you just like to quickly say, you know, let's reconsider this or let's add some nuance in there as you just talked about um a second ago and after we talk about nutrition we're going to ask you about religion and politics so at least we're starting with the hardest of the three isn't that what you just asked about um okay so what's important to know is that the literature and people's experiences <laughs> will will back this up um, uh, diets don't work, but healthy habits do. And this is going to look different for many individuals. As we think about how, when I say diets don't work, what I mean is every diet, and if we're talking about dieting for fat loss versus dieting to increase muscle size, which more often than not, we are just based on people's goals is I'm talking about, um, usually kind of how, um, uh, different diets seek to achieve some kind of calorie deficit. That is the goal of any diet. But what is oftentimes not shared is, um, or usually that's not shared. Uh, a diet, if successful, will help you achieve some kind of calorie deficit. What's, what's really not helpful, um, nor is it scientifically sound, is vilifying particular uh, food groups or macronutrients, meaning like proteins, fats, and carbs. Gosh, you can even throw alcohol in there. But I think the big thing you're seeing now, like the hot topic now, is um, carbs as being bad. Um, we know this to not be the case. Um, uh, certainly, um, 
I'm not saying just like go eat copious amounts of sugar, but I think that NHANES study as it's uh, or as, as the researchers um, uh, combined, this NHANES study shows that, you know, over the course of the American diet as tracked back to when I, I can't quite recall, uh, but as it's tracked, 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 when you see in recent history, past five, 10 years, as sugar intake comes down, obesity continues to climb. And uh, this uh, um, vilifying of carbohydrate, for example, is just uh, completely unfounded in literature. And it's not something that we want to fall in the trap uh, uh, in the fall in the trap of. Carbs are in and of themselves totally fine. And where this uh, uh, vilifying of carbs kind of originated from, in, in my opinion, is not from necessarily a, a bad place, but the reality is like if you are um, completely sedentary, do you need to be eating a ton of carbs? Um, probably not. And there are some also connections to processed carbohydrates that fall in this conversation. But as a macronutrient, uh, with all things held equal, carbs are not bad. This is, I think, an important yeah. one. When we talk about nutrition, and, and just because you mentioned weight loss, Zach, and, and I think you're such a thoughtful guy, um, here's a question that kind of gets into the the psychology around weight loss. And if, if, if this this could probably be a four-hour conversation in and of itself, Um so it might not be fair of me to ask you in the context of this podcast, but I'm doing it anyways. So we know it's really negative to just focus on weight loss for the sake of weight loss. Um, and what I mean by that is like the shame and judgment and guilt that can come with feeling like you're overweight. And as a result of that, the body positive movement was birth, which has a lot of um, very good things. It basically says that your self-worth is not connected to your weight. You can be in a larger body and still be very healthy. You can be in a larger body and be beautiful. Um, all of these things that I firmly believe are true. Now, the flip side is when taken to the extreme, and we wrote about this in the newsletter quite a while ago, like Adele basically a long time ago posted a picture like how proud she was that she lost weight. And she got so attacked by people for posting an image that said she lost weight. But we do know that having um, an increased BMI, particularly when that increased BMI is the result of not lean muscle mass, but body fat is not physiologically healthy if we're going to define health using terms like blood sugar and hypertension. So how do you as a coach, and maybe you're not really dealing with this population, but how do you walk this fine line between weight loss itself is a pretty dangerous goal, but like just saying that, oh, every, every like how... Basically, it's easy to say it's probably so hard to coach. Everybody can be and should be beautiful, but it is not physiologically healthy to be at a bigger weight. And we should encourage individuals that are at larger weights to um, attempt to lose that weight, but not connect their self-worth to it. I mean, I'm even struggling to phrase the question because this is such a, I think, a complex topic. But given that the population is like 66% overweight or obese, it's such an important question. And I feel like we've gotten this all wrong. Right. Like on the one camp, there's like the tech bros that just say, like, starve yourself and don't eat. And, you know, everyone will have an eating disorder. But hey, look, people are obese. So that's OK. And on the other camp, it's like, well, it's not healthy. And we see public health costs skyrocketing because of the challenge we have with weight in the developed world. Yes. So um, 
I'm going to like clarify one thing I said earlier and then hopefully like round it out and answer your question um, here. Um, I mentioned that carbs in and of themselves are not bad. It's the same thing for any one macronutrient. So like, you know, keto is very popular um, uh, right now as, uh, you know, that's a higher fat diet. Um, uh, again, as long as protein is held the same, whatever else you do with the fats and carbs, when it comes down to body composition, however you manipulate those variables and the, the foods that, you know, uh, comprise those uh, macronutrients uh, predominantly, it, it doesn't matter for body composition purposes. Now, there are important things like food sensitivities or even rather like what you're talking about with obesity, like metabolic diseases that create individual um, circumstances for each person's relationship with food that might challenge or bias someone's efforts towards one macronutrient or the other, or make these challenges um, potentially more uh, in line with consulting with a, a true professional or medical professional. And, and again, this is, that, that is not what I am, but where I, the way I'm going to answer your question is kind of how I answer it with not speaking in absolutes. Um, interestingly, the anti-diet movement, in my opinion, has become a diet. Right. So the anti-dieters are saying um, to diet is to, you know, be self-indulgent, self-absorbed, what have you. But I um, are not self-indulgent. Yeah, not self-indulgent, but but self-absorbed elitist or, or inconsiderate to other people's experiences. Uh, your goals are your goals. And I think the body positivity movement kicks ass. I think the anti-diet movement, where if it's speaking, like in those same absolutes, with judgment, with uh, uh, like this way is the only way, you've identified a, another diet. Interesting how that is. It's almost ironic. The anti-diet diet is a diet. Like it, it, it's just where we're at. So it kind of comes back to finding an even ground. And I, I think the, the best thing to come back to is, is this, when you are regularly exercising, you can afford to be even more flexible with what you enjoy because you lead a healthy lifestyle and you're metabolically like, you know, engaging in the world. Um, even if you're like quite regularly getting 10,000 steps, which by the way, that's evidence-based, that's not baloney, like getting 10,000 steps a day is a great goal. So however you're choosing to participate in the world by being like someone who's not just sitting on the couch all day, I think a great relationship with one's ex with one's nutrition could involve trying to make choices that are predominantly uh, um, ones that are going to involve real foods, whole whole foods as they're called. Right? These might be lean protein sources, fruits, vegetables, etc. But then to allow yourself to enjoy um, uh, food, um, whether it's desserts or, you know, snacks, because this is something that's so challenging. It's rooted in people's history. It's rooted in people's cultures and their religions. So we just want to make sure that if you are thinking about starting a movement practice and you're wanting to consider eating well, you, you need to start with the simple stuff. Like, you know, don't go out and, and maybe buy the most expensive gym package at a gym that has all these obstacles, you driving there, you're not sure about the environment, especially during COVID, maybe just start at home with that movement practice. And when it comes to your food groups, try not to be 
too partisan in one direction towards one food or the other within your ethics and within your you know religious beliefs be open-minded and be flexible and just take small steps at a time just really trying to avoid the absolutes i think is a huge ticket and if you feel like that's just too vague well there are reliable news sources out there, which either you know, we can point you to, uh, we have um, someone that works with us in, in, in nutrition, or that we try to share from other nutritional professionals that might just help guide your direction. Um, but starting simple is so, so important and not vilifying any one type of exercise or putting one type of exercise or macronutrient on a pedestal is so key. That is a um, phenomenal place to start to wrap up. Um, and I think Steve wanted to, to jump in and ask something. But before that, I, I do want to ask a couple of fun questions that listeners might be wondering. So, or at least these questions are fun to me. So I'm wondering. Um, so strongest male athlete you've ever coached and strongest female athlete you've ever coached. And when they come to mind, what's like the one quality that you really um, admire or respect in them? And I want numbers, not like their name. I could care less what their name is. Give me numbers, Zach. Um, I, I, I've had um, I've had a, a male athlete, um, and this is not even in powerlifting, but back squat. What was it? Was it three times three? Let's see. It might have been three times or, yeah, uh, uh, over three times their body weight. Um, I've had, uh, I've seen a, a. What was their body weight? At the time, around 70 kilos. Um, so this Which is, is like 154 pounds. And they back squatted for over 450. Mm -hmm. uh, they, wow. They've since squatted like 500. But, and then on the, on the lady side, I've had. Um, a lifter, uh, a squat, um, close to 400 pounds and deadlift close to 450 pounds. And I have, um, just by extension, I, I, I coach her in our on-site gym location. We work with people remotely, but we also have a brick and mortar gym. Um, while I was not her primary coach at this time, nor have I been a part of her, you know, journey in, in world Olympic trials and all this. Uh, and her pursuit towards the Olympics. But I do coach someone now at our gym who uh, was the fifth person ever, fifth female to ever clean and jerk double body weight. Uh, so this is not, this is someone else who led her on this journey. So she was um, 48 kilogram lifter. So just under a hundred pounds. And she clean and jerked, which is from the shoulders to overhead, uh, close to 225 pounds. Plus. And only thing I'm clean and jerking is like the cat's litter box. Um, all right. But then the, the other, the qualities. So those three athletes, like very quick, like what comes to mind? Obviously like great genetics, consistent training, but like when you think of them, what do you say? Um, I, I think when you, when, if you are pursuing that level of performance, you have to have a little crazy. You, 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 you know, when I said like find the balance, those lifters, and those Olympians or those Olympic hopefuls or those world team members, they're, they're like that balance is really not what it's about. That's not their priority. Is there time for them to balance? So to speak? Yes. But um, you have to really be focused. Like your why is your performance. And, and, and it's so much that, 
Um, and there's a lot of sacrifice involved. Yeah, Steve, I'm sure that there's a lot of talk that you have with your clients about this or your, your students is you hear this uh, probably the most commonly used word with Olympic athletes, sacrifice. So um, I would say that sacrifice and being really fixed on their performance, why? But at the same time, and one of the coolest things about being new to exercise is that it's just a journey in exploring what you're capable of. And that's probably the coolest thing about it is that you are embarking on something with no clear answers and you have no idea where that journey will take you. Um, so it, it's kind of like a, a blank slate for you to kind of fill in on. So um, uh, really exciting gains can be found by anyone who, who wants to pursue them. And, and along, along that note, what might be the most impressive thing, actually, uh, one of my dear friends, someone like, my, my squats, <laughs> you outside of outside of your squats. One of my dear friends went from being a sponsored, um, uh, professional cyclist to, um, an internationally competitive weightlifter. So you sometimes don't even know what your genetics are typing you for. Um, you, things aren't as fixed as like these fibers mean this and they're immalleable. They cannot move. So that's why I also in kind of tying this together say, try both. You never know where your strengths may lie and, and you might have a narrative that you're this person, but in fact you could really excel in this other thing. And that's why getting stuck on one track in any of these regards is, is not the, the best route, but be flexible and be explorative with your, with your food and your, your movement. I think that's going to be really important. I know this almost sounds too we, like um, peacemaker. We know this is true about, let me jump in real quick about the muscle fiber stuff. We know this is true firsthand um, because Steve completely blew his athletic um, career in childhood I don't know if you know, Zach, but Steve was the sixth fastest um, high school miler in the world. He ran a 401 before everyone was running a four. But 23andMe, the genetic testing company, has told Steve that he doesn't have a muscle fiber in his body for distance running, and he should be a 100-meter sprinter and power lifter. So we just got to get Steve, A, we got to get Steve to move to Asheville, and then B, we got to get him to powerlifting. Um, because he could be world-class. We just, you know, 23andMe told us. <laughs> Unfortunately, it did say that, but that um, that's another conversation on genetics, I guess, um, or the lack of uh, efficacy besides behind some of their testing. And, and but if it, I want to just say one last, one, one last thing, and I know that I, I perhaps have sound like overly, you know, judis, judicious and peacemakery to a point, hopefully that doesn't seem too vague, I, I, there's just so much nuance and compassion that you have to have when going into this. But um, I think just in general, uh, having a beginner's mindset is such a healthy, wonderful thing. So to, to try new things and to explore outside of your comfort zones. And even if I just said like, hey, you know, maybe the, the keto diet isn't this magical thing, but like you, you try it and you like, you like how you feel like, great. You know, it, it's just being open-minded and having a beginner's mind with this stuff is, is awesome. As long as you're just not like, you know, stuck on that one track forever. Love it. You know, what's, what's come out very clearly in talking with you is the care um, you take and the nuance that you're um, expounding upon, which I think is so important, especially when we get into the topics of fitness, diet, health, etc. Um, the tendency is to go to the extremes and 
kind of sit in those camps. So I've enjoyed this conversation. I know Brad has uh, as well. If listeners want to find out more about you and what your company and what you guys do over there, where should they go? Where should they find out? Uh, yes. Yeah, so the you can go to strengthratiohq.com, HQ as in headquarters. You can follow us on Instagram at strengthratio at the same name. Um, and yeah, we, we serve people globally with remote coaching and programming. And we also have our, our brick and mortar here in Asheville, North Carolina. So we dabble in both the remote and the, the on-site side of, of coaching and offer all services towards people's specific goals or towards, you know, at least in Asheville group, uh, fitness as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Zach is a uh, great coach. I can attest to that. He is going to make me the strongest man in Asheville, in the neighborhood of Malvern Hills at my home address in my office. Those are, um, and I will be the strongest man in this office. Those are like my goals on Strava because I've gotten into road cycling in the past year where I just want to be the best road cyclist who has my body weight in my general area on Strava. That's what I'm looking for. That's actually probably a pretty tough goal. Um, yeah. <laughs> Although I guess we're in Asheville, not Boulder. If you were in Boulder, you would just be depressed all the time if that was your goal. Yeah, I've kept um, it towards like a two-mile radius around my house. So, Okay, got it. Yeah, I'm just trying to be stronger than my three-year-old and my dog. Like That's like basic survival. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's awesome. Um, cool. All right. Well, thanks so much, Zach, for joining us on the Growth EQ podcast. Um, appreciate you, man. It is clear that you're a kindred spirit um, to the kinds of things that we do and that we think about. Uh, so really glad that we got to have this conversation. Yeah. And just wanted to thank you guys because the first time I tuned into the podcast, I messaged my business partner, Kyle. And I was like, he's, I'm like, they're saying all the things we talk to our clients about. And this is just like such a, a a nuanced thing and it takes like time to peel back layers on this. Um, but whenever you get involved in exercise and performance related stuff, there's just so much other stuff to include. And I feel like all of your guys' episodes really hit on the nuance of like all of these little discussions that kind of tie together to this, you know, uh, uh, growth, uh, right. Equation, this, like this growth mindset, it's, it takes time, but it's just a fun journey to embark on. There's, um, I'd be, I'd, I'd have to do it because it's, we almost made it a full podcast, Steve, without me dropping like some Zen Buddhism, but here we are in the tail, tail end of the podcast. And I can't resist. There is this Zen saying that, um, first there were mountains, then there were no mountains, then there were mountains. And there's all kinds of interpretations, but one of the more popular ones is it basically says that when you first start any kind of practice or you get into any kind of field, you see these mountains and you're like, oh, that's a mountain. And then as you get deeper into the practice, you get into all the nuance and complexity. And then you no longer see a mountain because you see patterns in, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like sedentation and all these things that make a mountain. And then eventually as you get closer to mastery, you see mountains again. And the mountains are the same, but they're different. And I feel like so, I mean, any field you could say that, but particularly in health, fitness, performance, um, you know, it's like the saying that we most became known for stress plus rest equals growth. To me, that's like a mountain. And then the mountain totally goes away when you get back into the nuance and then you step out and you're like, oh, there's the mountain again. Um, so I think that, you know, back to something you said earlier about if there's someone that has absolutes, you should approach that person with caution 
Um, I think that that is a hundred percent true because like they might just be seeing the first mountain. And once you go to see the second mountain, then you realize that like there are no absolutes. Um, so yeah, I really love that expression because I think it, it does get to a lot of this balance because you hear us so much talk about, you know, oh, it's actually really simple and complexity is often a sign of like bullshit. But then you hear us be like, no, everything is like so nuanced and complex and both those things are true at once. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. That's a, I think that's a great point and a great saying or a great piece of literature or scripture. I think it's, a, I call it, I don't know, saying literature, scripture, principle, wisdom. All right. This is where we should end the show. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.